I'm Caroline Hugg, and today I'm joined with Alec Cutler, Portfolio Manager of the Orbis Global Balanced Fund. Alec has been a long vocal critic of ESG. He believes the ESG movement has had little positive impact on the energy transition and has even had harmful consequences for developing countries. Alec, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So from my understanding, you used to be an SRI manager. That's right. So does the ESG movement bear some similarities to the SRI movement? SRI was very similar in that socially responsible investing started out with the Quakers only in Pennsylvania in the U.S. Once it gained traction, it also was highly correlated with the growth market taking off. And SRI funds outperformed. They became quite popular until they peaked out in 2000, around the same time as the growth stocks peaked out. Sounds a little similar. What I call ESG 1.0 is really a resurrection of that movement. It may see the same fate unless some changes are made. So drawing from your past experience, what um, mistakes have ESG investors made with regards to their views on energy? I view ESG 1.0 or global warming 1.0 as very effective in gaining awareness. But to create awareness, you had to make the story very simple. And unfortunately, in order to get traction, you had to call the energy industry in total evil rather than coal. That's created issues. We used more coal last year than ever because of ESG. ESG was very easily knocked out a lot of natural gas. And 2021 rolls around, and 2022, China, India, Indonesia, Europe revert back to using coal. So you mentioned coal, but what about oil majors, right? So your global balance fund might seem to some investors as anti-ESG with allocations to companies like Shell. So why are you investing in the stock and what's your view on, on oil majors? So Shell is the largest LNG, liquid natural gas infrastructure company in the world. It's labeled as an oil major, but it actually does very little oil relative to everything else it does. So Europe has decided that that natural gas is green if used in certain ways and mitigated over the long term. And the U.S. is coming around to that too. So in a way, uh, they are a ESG-friendly energy company. The problem is they're so accessible to the movement, if you will, that they've been the most protested. And what happens when you protest Shell and they decide to produce less oil and gas and focus less on, on, uh, on LNG, that oil is not, not, no longer not being produced. It's just shifting. The production is shifting to Chinese and Russian companies. What would you say to investors who think that Shell's net zero commitments are based on carbon capture and nature-based offsets. So carbon capture is a technology that hasn't been developed yet. And, you know, Shell would have to plant trees and rainforests across the world um, to make up for its carbon emissions. Well, first of all, they're trying, which sets them apart from most of the oil companies. Second of all, carbon capture is real and carbon capture has to happen. It's in every um, Paris Climate Accord plan and the technology is getting there. And the way you get the technology there faster is by pushing it and supporting it. So you now have a lot of effort going into carbon capture and making it economic and having the shelves of the world get behind it and the big industrials like Mitsubishi Heavies, one of the world's leaders in in carbon capture. Uh, That's how you get it across the line. The world wants energy. The world needs energy. 
the world is still trying to develop. 75% of the world hasn't flown in an airplane and 50% of the world doesn't have access to clean cooking fuel. To tell them not to use more energy is crazy and racist, quite frankly. And what about just investing in, in renewables and trying to push more of that capital into renewables rather than oil majors? Yeah, the, the uber focus on renewables is one of the problems. That's why we're having energy security issues around the world. That's why we're having um, grid reliability issues. Wind and solar are fantastic, but they're intermittent. They have to be paired with things that can operate when it's not sunny or windy. The natural pair to that is nuclear and natural gas. There are two natural batteries for, for the grid. One is pumped hydro. Drax is the biggest pumped hydro owner in the, in the UK, where you pump water up a hill when it's windy, use the electricity to pump the water up the hill, and then when the wind stops, you let the water drain down the hill and spin turbines. It's the same turbine spinning the other way. Uh, the other long-term battery is hydrogen. So having those windmills and solar panels when it's windy and, uh, windy and sunny produce electricity, use that electricity to electrolyze the water and create hydrogen, store the hydrogen, and then when it's not windy, use that to fire gas turbines. That's fantastic. We want a decarbonized energy infrastructure. That's great. But the two sides have to talk to each other. The experts are in both places. You've mentioned to me before that um, sometimes the E in ESG is, is hyper-focalized on and often ignores the S. Yes. Uh, would you be able to expand on this? Yeah, and that's, that's leading to failure. So if, if the Western world is super focused on E and you know, is worried about um, rising sea levels, to be less politically correct about it, worried about their second homes going underwater in the Hamptons, they are focused on that while the rest of the world hasn't developed, as I said before. The rest of the world will not come along for the ride. They will, not, they will not be dictated to when they are simply trying to earn enough to buy a moped so they can go five miles away and get a better job or be able to send their kids to college or be able to, to, to cook with clean cooking fuel. If you look at the bifurcation of the world in the East and Western blocks, the Cold War that's forming, and the East is collecting the developing world, in part, I believe, because we've been trying to tell them what to do in a patronizing way haven't really been helping them, just telling them, don't use fossil fuels, which means don't develop. It's just not fair or right. But I guess the point that you could make as well is, um, you know, the ESG movement, its aim is to reduce kind of, or try and prevent global warming. Global warming will ultimately affect our, those communities in developing countries. 1.2 billion people are predicted to be climate refugees by 2050. We need to do this quickly, and that's why there's so much pressure. What would you, what would you say to that? I'd say the first step would be to um, eat your own cooking. Air conditioning sales are, are way up in the UK. So we're telling the develop, we're telling the developing where we're gonna save you by reducing climate emissions. And yet, when you go to the, the store and buy an air conditioner, that's not what you're thinking about. You're just thinking the hot. And now the, the UK government is, is um, trying to um, get rid of everyone's gas-fired heaters and put heat pumps in. The beauty of a heat pump is you have an air conditioner and a heater. So next summer, if everyone has heat pumps, if there's a button you can push to be cooler and more comfortable, you're going to push it. So I'd say, that, I'd say the first thing would be to, to show some leadership by example. Otherwise, why should the developing world listen? 
And having had a look at your fund, so allocations like Shell, you mentioned Drax, um, Kinder Morgan, could you give me like an example of engagements with these companies that have worked? So Drax, we were engaged with Drax when they were a coal-fired generator. So they were the largest coal plant in the UK, I think in Europe, six units. And we worked with them and pushed them hard to switch to biomass. And some may say that biomass is dirty too, but it has the ability to, one, it is carbon neutral if you consider a 22-year life cycle of a tree, uh, and it can be carbon negative once you start capturing the carbon. An example on the negative side, uh, Cree Electric is one of the biggest developers of coal plants around the world. We pushed them very hard to stop doing that. They said, um, no, thank you. We're not listening to you. So we sold the stock. Last month, ESG funds had their largest outflows on record. Why do you think this is the case? Because they're underperforming. So we're starting to see periods of underperformance. And those that were there for the, the sales pitch, where you can be profitable and good, are saying, That's, this isn't what I signed on for. So if it continues to underperform, it will fade away. I guess my last question to that is, is if like interest in ethical investment is cyclical, does that mean investors don't really care? I don't think interest in ethical investing is cyclical. We would consider ourselves to be highly ethical investors. We, um, we don't use the term ESG much. We use the term that we've always used, responsible investing. They're very close, but we don't like putting a moniker on it that actually plugs you into various different boxes. And when people look at our funds, they don't see a fund that's anti-ESG. And when they pick apart the names and we discuss them, they said, that sounds like a responsible investment. So I don't think I would equate ethical investing with a responsible investing. I don't think that's ever going to die. And I think it's profitable to be an ethical investor because if the companies we're researching are unethical, they're not going to be profitable for long. They're not going to outperform the market. They're eventually going to get caught out. Okay, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much, Alec. Thank you. Thank you very much.